If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, last week, we started our Vision 2021 series, and we established the need for a biblical vision. Uh, the Proverbs tell us, without vision, the people perish. And of course, I understand this is a reference to uh, battle, but I think it applies more broadly than that. So uh, we're doing things a little differently this month. We, what we normally do is we we're kind of working our way through a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings as part of our worship. It's called expositional preaching. So we take a passage and uh, we work our way through it. And the next week we're in the next passage. Um, but it is, there are occasions where it's very profitable to pause and to address an area that's critical to the life of the church. And what could be more important than the vision and the mission of uh, the church? So uh, we're still going to be in the Bible, still going to be looking at what the Bible says, but we're, we're answering the question, who are we and what are we here uh, to do? So um, a few years ago, a longtime friend of mine asked me to have lunch. He was, uh, I think he was 32 at the time, and uh, he was making a major career change. So he was going from uh, a job in the school system to working, in, uh, uh, working at a large, a major sort of investment firm, a national investment firm. And he asked me to have lunch, and so I agreed, and we sat down and you know, had our normal pleasantries and talked about the things we would normally talk about, family and work and just life and, and everything else. And then kind of abruptly, he uh, paused and he moved all of his stuff out of the way to the side, and he said, almost in a different voice, he said, John, tell me about your dreams. I thought, well, this is kind of odd. He said, when you look into the future, what do you see? If you could wave a magic wand and you can see and you could just see life the way you always imagined, what would you see? I said, okay, what's going on here? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you using that voice? And he said, uh, he's, no, he continued to go on his thing. He said, um, I want you to think about your vision for life. I want you to think about a vision for your families. Your family finally had to say, okay, seriously, just talk to me like a friend. Like, don't you don't need to talk to me like that. Just talk to me like we always would when we have lunch. And so then he told me he was kind of rehearsing his sales pitch. He, again, knew he had this obligation to build up his uh, client base. And so he was kind of rehearsing his sales pitch. And he said, how, what did you think? How did I do? And I said, I think it'd be a little better if it was just a little more natural, you know, a little more sort of uh, friendly rather than so salesy. Well, I think what you're saying is true. I agree with it. We do need a vision um, but I don't think you have to say it in such a way that it's kind of so slimy. And so, um, you know, he, he, hopefully he took that in and changed for his upcoming presentations. But he, the point that he was making is we all need a vision. We need to look forward and see where is it that we see ourselves? Where are we headed? We talked about this last week. Vision answers that very question. What do we see when we look ahead at our future? And here's uh, the definition that I gave you last week. A vision statement paints a picture of where we are going and what it will look like when we get there. So we need vision as individuals. Otherwise, we get to the latter stages of life. We get to our twilight years and we say, how in the world did I end up here? I never dreamed that this is where I would be at this stage in my life. We need vision as a church. Otherwise, we find that we can very slowly sort of veer off the rails and end up spending our time and end up in a place that we never thought we would be, or even worse, we find out over time that we cease to exist as a church. So we talked about that last week. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch that. But in review, 
Here's what we said about our vision. Our vision is to see God's kingdom advance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is what we yearn for. This is what we long for. This is what we want to see happen. The kingdom of God advance on the earth. Now we know we can't do it, but we pray for it. We invite other people into the kingdom. We seek the kingdom. And we know that the kingdom is made manifest. We see the advancement of the kingdom as injustice is minimized. All life is cherished and protected, even from the womb. Inequality stamped out. Hatred obliterated. True beauty celebrated. Poverty eliminated. And the Lord of the universe is worshipped by people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. As God brings people to himself, he brings them into the kingdom through the gospel, and then they live lives that are consistent with the kingdom ethic. So, again, that was last week. Uh, but if vision paints a picture of where we're headed, then our mission statement describes what it is that God has put us here to do in order to see that vision Fulfilled. So here's, here's what a mission statement does. A mission statement describes what God has put us here to do and answers the question, how will we pursue the fulfillment of our vision? What is our primary calling? Why is it that we exist? What has God put us on this earth to do? A mission statement keeps us moving forward toward the fulfillment of the vision. So a couple examples, I have a friend who his personal mission statement is this, my mission in life and in death is to serve as a living stimulant toward the next great awakening in America and to the ends of the earth. So he says, this is what, I, this guy, I think he's in his mid-70s at this point, this is what I hope to see in my lifetime. I've got another friend whose mission statement is this, my mission is to declare and demonstrate the power of the gospel in my life and family first and then outward to the world. Now, don't feel like a failure if you don't have a mission statement, but it is helpful to know and to at least be able to think through and articulate what we're here for. If you glance at the signs of the marquee signs of churches, they may give you a sense of kind of what they're all about, why they're here. If you drive around and you look at churches and what they put on their signs, Again, you get an idea of what they hope to accomplish. Let me give you a couple. Here's one. This one says, what part of thou shalt not don't you understand? So what do you think their mission is? Their mission is to reform behavior. Their mission is to get people to start acting right. Here's another one. It says, you think it's hot here. Now, what do you think that was? Their mission is, it sounds like, to sort of scare people into the kingdom, to scare people into trusting in Jesus. Here's the third one. Dear AC thieves, you will need AC where you're going. And the pastor even signed this one. The pastor put his signature on this one. What do you think is the mission? The mission is probably personal accountability, right? You have to be accountable for what you do. And so you get a sense for a church's mission by what they, and of course there are funnier ones and there are more uh, controversial ones, but I, I think that you can get a sense, again, for what a church is all about. This is what our mission statement has been for the last three years. We exist to make disciples who make disciples for God's glory and the joy of all peoples. And that's a very good mission statement. It's inherently biblical. It's memorable. It flows right out of the Great Commission. So it's a good mission statement. But what we discovered through prayer and 
research and study and conversation as elders is it, it really begs some questions that would be better answered in a mission statement. Um, for example, making disciples of whom? And so I, I had my Capshaw t-shirt on. I was at the gym the other day, and, which has the, our current mission statement, making disciples who make disciples. And I had a guy who came up to me and very suspiciously, not angrily, but almost very suspiciously said, what do you mean making disciples? And of whom are you trying to make disciples? So I, I was able to explain to him, and, but uh, it, it begs a question. It also doesn't even hint at how we might go about making disciples. There's no pathway for discipleship. Um, it also says nothing about worship. And so worship, we know, is the chief end of man to, to glorify, enjoy God, to worship Him. And so that's not included in our mission statement. And finally, it leaves unspoken the central agent in all disciple-making endeavors, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've prayerfully come up with a new mission statement. You, you, you got our vision statement last week, a new mission statement that we believe captures the essence of the biblical teaching on what God has put us here to do. Here's what it is. This is our new mission statement. We exist to treasure Jesus, become like Him together, and share His gospel. And in order to communicate that this is an ongoing thing that we're all committed to, that we will continue to do, we're phrasing it with active verbs. If you're an English major with gerunds, it looks like this. Our mission, treasuring Jesus, becoming like Him together, and sharing His gospel. This is what we believe that God has put us together, put us here to do. Treasuring Jesus, becoming like Him together, sharing His gospel. You're going to hear that a lot. You're going to see it a lot, not because we think it's cute or clever or some sort of catchphrase. We believe it actually captures what, what God has called us to do. And so we're going to organize our efforts and our ministries around this particular mission statement. We're still making disciples, but we believe this better explains what exactly we're trying uh, to do. So what I want to do this morning is, over the next three weeks, we're going to take each one of those phrases, one per week, and explain it. So what I want to do this morning is look at what does it mean to treasure Jesus? We're treasuring Jesus. What does that actually mean? Let me show you from Matthew 10, Jesus' own words here. We're going to look at uh, verses 34 through 39. Let me start by reading verses 34 through 36 of Matthew 10. Here reads the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Janine and I have a friend who recently got a tattoo on his forearm, and I actually, I thought it was kind of cool myself. Janine didn't care for it. She thought it was a little too, a little too mysterious, um, a little too confusing. Um, but here's what the tattoo uh, looks like. It says this, Love will tear us apart. And this is actually a reference to Jesus' words that I just read, where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to actually separate or divide people in their own families. Now we read that and we say, wait a second, this is the, one, this is the same guy that the prophets referred to as the Prince of Peace. How could Jesus possibly say that, that he's come not to bring peace but a sword? Well, he's come to bring a different kind of peace. The people of Israel uh, who would have heard Jesus' words 
Uh, they expected their long-awaited Savior to bring a political and national peace. They were under the tyranny of Rome, under Rome's oppression. And even though this was during the period known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which went from roughly 20 uh, B.C. to 180-something A.D., it wasn't a time of peace if you were a Jew from Palestine. And what they were waiting for, what the Jews were waiting for, is for a Redeemer, for a Messiah to restore their rightful place, to bring about national peace. And Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm about at least initially, Jesus came to bring a different kind of peace, peace with God, which paradoxically very few would accept. See, the gospel is the announcement that God has sent His Son to redeem, to save broken, sinful people like you and me. And He would do that through the life, the perfect life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, so that all those who trust in Him would be totally forgiven for every sin, Every sin we've ever committed, every wrong thought, every impulse, every sinful motive, all of those things totally cleansed and forgiven. The gospel is inclusive in the sense that it welcomes everyone to believe and receive this forgiveness. But the gospel is exclusive in that it announces that this forgiveness can only be found in Jesus Christ. There is no other prophet no other teacher, no other leader, no other Messiah, no other religion that can offer the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And because of that exclusivity, it will separate people who are members of the same family. 2004, led a short-term team a trip to Athens, Greece, about a month before the Olympics. And so the goal of that trip was to train up people from 27 different countries on how to share Christ in, you know, in, we had a, a 90 second, a five minute, and then a 15 minute testimony. And we were working with people to help them to under, because, you know, during the Olympics, of course, the summer games, uh, everybody in the world, people from all over the world come, they descend upon the same city. So we did that. And we had one day where we had a, we had a free day. We took a tour of, it was called the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And we, of course, spent time in Athens, Greece. And we went and saw the famed uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where uh, Paul delivered his uh, great speech, his great sermon in Acts 17. Uh, we saw Corinth and what was considered likely to be the, the, the first house church in Corinth. It was all fascinating stuff. Well, the guy who, was, who gave us a tour, his name was Costas. Costas became a follower of Christ in his early 30s, or early 20s, rather. At this point, he was in his early 30s. And he told us that when he became a follower of Jesus... His own father looked him in the eye and said, Today I have lost a son. You're dead to me. You no longer exist as my son. And it got so bad that Costa said that his father hired men to assault, to track down and assault his son so that Costas had to go into hiding. At one point he said he was actually riding around Athens in the trunk of his friend's car because he knew that his father had hired people to pursue him. A father and son divided by the power of the gospel. This is what Jesus says will happen. Now look at verse 37. In light of that, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now a casual reader, I mean, we come across this, we say, what in the world? Who does Jesus think he is? He comes crashing into history 
and then into our own lives, presuming to take precedence over our own children, presuming to be loved, demanding to be cherished more than we love and cherish anything else or anyone else. But in Jesus' case, of course, it's entirely appropriate. He alone has died for us. He alone has paid the penalty for our rebellion, canceled the debt that we owed, the debt that stood between us and God on the cross. The evidence that God approved of it was the resurrection. And He did all of this out of love. First of all, love for the Father, but also love for us. And what Jesus demands in return is a very unique kind of allegiance, a unique kind of loyalty. So what does it mean in Jesus' own words? What does it mean to treasure Him? Here's the first aspect, our first point this morning. To treasure Jesus is to place Him first in our affections, to love Him more than anyone or anything. Jesus is not coy about it. He's not evasive. He's not even mysterious in the way he presents it. He says, you must love me more than your own family. You must love me more than your own children, or you're not worthy of me, which means you don't have me. I don't belong to you, and you don't belong to me. Now, sometimes well-meaning Christians, and I, and I know why they do this, because you know, and a lot of times in counseling, especially marriage counseling, someone will say, well, I don't love him anymore. Now, sometimes what well-meaning Christians will do is they suggest that biblical love is purely behavioral and not emotional. It's only about what we do and what, not what we feel. And I think that's, well, it's not biblical, but I understand why they would go in that direction, right? It's impossible to reconcile with scriptural in that the Bible is filled with calls to emotion to delight in things, to rejoice in things, to be grateful, to be tender, to be compassionate, to grieve and to mourn. These are not simply behaviors. These are true feelings. So what Jesus calls us to here is not just to act a certain way, although it is important that we obey, as we'll see, but to feel a certain way about Him. Now, certainly love is more than a feeling, but it cannot be less than that. Jesus is calling us to believe in Him. Yes, He's calling us to obey Him, absolutely. But He's also calling us to delight in Him, to cherish Him, indeed, to treasure Him. He's not calling for the disrespect of parents. He's not, calling, uh, he's not condoning the ne neglect of parents or children. But what He's saying is our love for Him must be so much stronger than our love for our own family that it pales in comparison. And there's a reason Jesus says this in those specific ways. You remember what happened when Jesus was he's going town to town, village to village. He's calling people to repent and follow him. Well, the two, the two most common uh, and ardent objections were this, the lowest hanging fruit, money, right? That was the biggest. But I can't. I, I can't do that. The second one, family. Family was a deterrent. But I have to go take care of my ailing father. I have to look after my daughter. I have to go. And Jesus will not allow for family, our love for family, to push him to the background. So our mission then is to, we, we want to see people. We want to help people. We want to treasure Jesus ourselves and help other people treasure Jesus. And the only way to do that, to bring people to a place of love for Jesus, is not simply to command them to love him 
but actually to reveal, to show, and to demonstrate the way that He loves us. I had a young lady I met with in my office, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, and a young man had asked her or had told her that he was going to marry her, promised they were going to get married and have this great future together and, and hope to have a family together and so on, and then he broke, broke up with her. So she came and sat in my office, and she's very distraught, and she's crying. She said, Pastor John, I need you to call him and tell him, command him to love me. I said, I don't, that's not really how it works, though. Like, I can say that to him, but that doesn't mean he's going to love you. You can't command somebody, you can't simply command somebody to love, at least simply that. Only love itself engenders love among the beloved. Let me say it a, a different way. Love only comes from love. As a great blues singer, Bonnie Raitt, once sang, I can't make you love me if you don't. I can't make your heart feel something it won't. We only love when we experience love. In fact, isn't this what Jesus said? You love because I first loved you. So a central part of our gatherings and our discipleship is going to be to showcase the love of God in Christ, which is actually the theme of the whole Bible, God's rescue mission, God's plan to, to buy back a sin-cursed and broken world and a sin-cursed and broken people by sending His Son to die for them, an act which was the supreme demonstration of love. In fact, the Bible says this is how we know what love is. God sent His Son so let's look at verse 38 together. We continue to think through this idea of treasuring Jesus. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You ever heard someone say they're going through a difficult time, maybe they have a, a bad boss or hard time in their marriage or unruly children or a lingering illness, and they say, well, I guess this is just my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. To bear the cross is not to suffer passively or to, to have bad things happen to us. To take up a cross, which is what Jesus commands here, is a statement showing initiative. It meant actually shouldering an instrument of death and bringing upon oneself the shame and rejection associated with it. The cross was offensive. The cross was obscene. The most erudite of Rome and Greek... The Greeks, they, they wouldn't even say the word cross around other sophisticated people. It was just too degrading. It was the most degrading way for a criminal to die. It was something nobody, and I'm, I'm not condemning anybody or for doing this now, but no one would ever wear a cross around their neck because it was an object of shame and disgrace. It carried a horrible stigma to it. It was an instrument of torture. And when Jesus says that each disciple must take up his cross... He's not talking about with living with some sort of minor discomforts and thereby saying, well, I guess we have a cross to bear. No. What Jesus is demanding is that all those who follow him must identify with him in his suffering, in his rejection, and even possibly in his death. What Jesus commands his followers to take up their cross is calling them to go public with their allegiance to him regardless of the cost. One theologian writes, cross-bearing was a public outward act. Jesus invites us to come and die, to take part in Jesus' destiny of suffering. 
Here's a second way that we treasure Christ. To treasure Jesus is to identify with Him in such a way that we invite rejection and prepare for the possibility of death. This is what Jesus is saying. Identifying with Him. Now, why does that matter so much today? Well, it's becoming increasingly unpopular and dangerous in many places to identify with Jesus. You know, there was a point, and, and, and we're still kind of there in, in North Alabama in some ways, uh, but the, the, the day when it was sort of endearing to tell someone else that you were a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm a deacon at my church, or I serve in this ministry, or whatever, that day is, is almost past us. Because now, if you tell someone a Christian, rather than that being a positive thing, it actually sparks within them suspicion. Is this person hateful? Is this person a bigot? Is this person narrow-minded? Can I trust this person? Does this person have some weird beliefs? Does this person condemn me? Is this person going to judge me? You might get any number of labels by calling yourself a Christian. Being a Christian is not regarded... Now, of course, again, I understand where we are, but in many places of the world, and even more so here than it was 10 years ago, being a Christian, again, is not going to endear you to someone, calling yourself a Christian, but it may actually undermine what you hope to accomplish in terms of your relationship. And so as a result of that, what some people have determined and will determine is, I'm not going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, quote, private faith. I'm not going to share my faith with anyone. But treasuring Jesus, it won't allow for that. In fact, Jesus himself says, if you deny me, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Now, that needs some explanation, which we don't have time for, but, but Jesus will not allow for followers who do not follow. He will not allow for disciples who do not profess him, who do not confess him. I saw this week uh, where Trevor Lawrence, who's a football player who uh, plays, played for Clemson, is expected to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. He was criticized recently for saying that his worth is tied to his identity in Christ and not where he goes in the NFL draft, not even what the pro scouts think about him. And critics then started jumping in and saying, well, football is not everything to him, then will he really work hard? And if football is not his life, if football doesn't mean everything to him, will he really have a drive? Is this someone that we can count on to keep getting better? And Trevor Lawrence said so beautifully, because my football career doesn't define me, I actually am free to work harder and to take more risks without the fear of failure because everything is not tied up in my football life. But as soon as he mentioned that he was a Christian and that football was not his God, people came out of the woodwork to criticize. As believers, we will suffer. And of course, it's going to vary. Uh, between persons and where we live, we will experience rejection. Some of that will be because we live on a sin-cursed world. Other rejection will come because we actually believe what Jesus said and we're open and upfront about it. We live by His teaching. We believe what Jesus had to say. And we also believe that there is no other prophet or teacher or leader who has the words of salvation. These are counter-cultural convictions. And by the way, what do you think the most, um, the most tangible act of identifying with Jesus is? It's baptism, right? Baptism. Buried in the likeness of his death, we go down and we're raised to walk in newness of life. 
So we are, we are identifying with Christ. And if you've never been baptized, I mean, the fair question is, why not? I mean, what, what are you waiting on? Is it because you don't want to identify with Jesus? If you haven't been baptized, we have a baptism service coming up in a couple of weeks. So we encourage you to pray about this if you've never been baptized. This is a step of obedience. This is the, we might even say, the quintessential way of identifying with Jesus. Now let's look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A few years ago, I led a small group uh, through a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace? I don't agree with everything Yancey writes, but uh, this is just a powerful, powerful book. And yet Yancey said when he wrote that book, he got the most angry, uh, hateful comments and emails that he'd gotten from anything that he's ever written. And one of the, one of the chapters uh, is called the, uh, the Atrocious Mathematics of the Gospel. He said, man, this really set people off. He pointed out in that, that the, and somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but that the logic in Jesus' stories, it doesn't seem to add up. The one who works just a few hours gets paid the exact same amount as the one who works all day. Uh, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep unattended to go find the one who's wandered off. A woman puts in less than a penny in the offering plate, and she's the one that Jesus said contributed more than anyone else. And so on it goes. And Yancey said that particular uh, chapter or article prompted people to call him godless, a blasphemer, a false teacher, among other things. But I think we have to admit, he has a point on some level, doesn't he? So often the logic of Jesus, it doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. Here he tells his disciples, if anyone would try to find his own life, he's actually going to end up losing it. But if you lose your life, that's the very way to find it. Now, this makes a little more sense when we consider it has both a future and a present dimension to it. In the future sense, Jesus is saying if we try to save ourselves by our own progress, our own strategies, our own schemes, our own efforts, our own abilities, we will actually discover that we've lost our lives. Namely, we've missed out on the one essential element of true salvation, and that is faith, believing in Jesus. So the more that we try to earn it, the more that we try, the more that we believe we can do it on our own, the more that we find that we put faith aside and cling to our own righteousness. Now, the present aspect of this is that the one who tries to gain his life, to maximize his life by the accumulation of stuff, the pursuit of pleasure, the building of a career, um, the advancement of his own cause, actually loses it because he or she finds out that all the energy spent trying to do those things, trying to accomplish those things, trying to satisfy those ambitions, it leads to an incredible, palpable emptiness even now. And we can even say, fairly, an enslavement. Think about it this way. Anything that we think about all the time, anything that we can't stop uh, thinking about or talking about, anything that we can't let go of, that actually becomes our master because we, we become enslaved by it. The guy who can't stop thinking about the stock market, it consumes his thinking. He becomes uh, ruled by it. That becomes his master. And, and I've been there. You know, you followed last week this whole Dogecoin saga, right? It's like you can't stop watching this stuff. But any time that, that you start thinking about something all the time, that becomes your master. The woman who can't put down Facebook, 
She has to respond to everything and, and monitor every light, even to the neglect of her own family. That actually becomes her functional Lord. The man who constantly watches the clock, desperate for the workday to end so he can go get a drink. It's all he thinks about in the afternoon is getting that drink after work. He becomes enslaved to that. That becomes his master. The woman who can't wait to share the latest gossip, that need to bolster her own image by having this juicy morsel of gossip, it's, it's always on her mind and she can't wait to share it. She becomes enslaved to it. The man who thinks all day about his next meal, when he will next eat, what he will next eat, that becomes his master. And all these, all these things are really attempts to find satisfaction and pleasure and meaning apart from Christ. And this is what Jesus is talking about, trying to save our life, trying to make something of ourselves, trying to make our life count for something by our own pursuits. Jesus says it leads to losing our lives emptiness and despair now here's a final way that we treasure jesus from this passage to treasure jesus is to so rest in his finished cross work that his death becomes our death and his life our life when we trust in jesus we give our lives to him we die to all the things that once defined us selfish ambition our need for approval the fear of death, the enslaving power of sin, the condemnation of the law, the need to be right all the time. You ever been with somebody and they just have to be right all the time? Talk about an exhausting existence. You talk about having no freedom, always having to get the last word and always needing to prove that I'm right. Well, in Jesus Christ, His death, we die his death becomes our death. We die to all those things that used to define us. And our true identity, our ultimate identity is now rooted in our union with Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For me to live is Christ, he says, and to die is gain. In other words, my life is defined by the fact that I belong to Jesus. He saved me. He delivered me. He made me a new person. I've died to my old nature. What makes me who I am is not what I do for a living. It's not who I'm related to. It's not how much money I have or what I've accomplished or what I one, may accomplish one day. What makes me who I am is that I am united with Christ. To, fair, to paraphrase the Heidelberg Catechism, our greatest comfort is that we belong body and soul in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In this life and the next, He will protect us. He will keep us. He will guide us. He'll never turn away from us, which means that He has secured for us also the love of the Father. Now, of course, if we belong to Jesus in life and death, if we belong to Him, then there's nothing that He can't ask of us. There's nothing that He can't command us to do. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes, when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if. I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, this is not obedience at all. You are saying, you're my advisor, not my Lord. And I might even do, uh, I, I'll be happy to take your recommendations, and I might even do some of them. Keller says, no, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion, 
But that is not, or that is what we are called to do, nothing less. So as it relates to the way that we see ourselves in our marriage, in our family, in our vocation, what we regard as pleasurable, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we're saying is, God, I belong to you in Christ. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. Have you come to this, have you come to Christ with conditions this morning? You come to Christ and you know what, if you do this, if you give me success, if you just give me that person, if you send me someone to marry, if you just make sure that my finances are going well, if you give me a good career, if you do this for me, then I will follow you. That's, that's the sort of conditional obedience, which is no obedience at all. And maybe for you this morning, today is the day to repent and to recognize the depth of Jesus' love for you and to treasure Jesus the way that he calls you to. So let me draw this to a close this way and say, you know, if you, if you, if you read the Gospels, there are some 30 different things that the disciples are, are called to do. I mean, 30 different things. And, um, of course, they're not things that you do in order to, to earn God's favor or to become a disciple. These are the things that characterize the true disciples of Jesus. And if you boil those down to four, the four that appear most frequently, they're this. Love Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Worship Jesus. And obey Jesus. So Matthew talks about the obedience to Christ. Uh, John, in his gospel, talks about this, the believing, over and over, believing in Jesus. We see worshiping Jesus as a central feature of a disciple and also uh, believing in Jesus. But if you really boil those down again, try to simplify those, it's not just simply believing in Jesus that he exists. It's not simply living obedient lives. That, if that were it, the Pharisees would have been the most uh, honorable and spiritual people. It's not even knowing Jesus intellectually. All of these things seem to point to treasuring Jesus as Savior, Lord, Redeemer, and Friend in such a way that we rest in His finished work. We love Him more than we love anything or anybody. And we obey His commands out of love and out of a secure position in Christ. So this is the disciple that we want to make. This is what we want to do as a church. We want to treasure Jesus we want to invite other people to see Jesus and treasure Him. And this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen alone. It happens, as we're going to see next week, as we become like Him together. But this, of course, is a work of God's Spirit and takes the prayers of God's people. So let's pray that God would give us the grace uh, to do that. Father in heaven, we are so inclined, we know, to treasure other things more than we treasure Jesus and to love our family members, and to love things more than we love you. We ask this morning for your forgiveness. We ask that you would pour out your grace. We ask that you would have mercy on us. And Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the ability by your Spirit to treasure Jesus. And we know when we treasure Jesus, it's not at your expense, Father, but when we treasure Jesus, we are treasuring you. When we receive Jesus... As this very same passage says, we receive you. So help us, Lord, to consider honestly and humbly and accurately who Jesus is and to love him more than anything or anyone, to delight in him,
to rest in His finished work and to be courageous enough by your Spirit to identify with Jesus in His suffering, in His rejection. And we know that we can only do this as you give us the power to do so. So we're praying in the words of Augustine, command what you will, but give what you command. We know what you've asked us to do. We're pleading with you for the strength by your Spirit to do it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.